You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? And listen, I applaud you for making it out in that rain. I saw a guy building a boat out there. And uh, wow, that was something. So, all right. Let's, there's two words. Two words that if I spoke them would send a shiver down your spine. When you read these two words associated with your name, it immediately ruins your day. And if you've ever gotten these two words, you were miserable until it was over. What words am I talking about? Jury duty. And it is, uh, how many of you have ever spent a day in the courthouse in jury duty? And I had to specify that because one time I said, how many of you have ever spent a day at the courthouse on trial? And a few people raised their hand. I'm like, oh, it's more of an IQ question. But anyway, um, but now I got, I was supposed to go to jury duty in February. And, you know, I got the, you know, you get the notice in the mail, like jury summons. That's another terrible two words. And uh, so anyway, it's like, well, you got to call. Anyway, so finally the day comes and I call and they say I don't have to go. I, I don't know if I've ever been happier. Maybe the birth of my three children. But right after that was that day I didn't have to go to jury duty. And uh, my wife said to me, when I found out I didn't have to go, she said, you skipped through the house. And I said, Carrie, I am almost 47 years old. I don't skip. And she says, you were skipping through the house. You were so happy. Now, maybe I did. But uh, now there's something that really bothers me about this whole jury duty situation, and that is that my wife never gets picked. I have been picked more times than I can count. And she's been, now my wife and I in February will be 24 years that we've been married. And, well, thank you very much. Appreciate that. That's really more of a feat for her than it is for me. But, uh, but anyway, and then we dated for four and a half years before we got married. And she's only been picked twice in almost 30 years. And it really makes me question as to whether she's in this country legally. And, uh, but one time, so let me tell you about the two times she got picked. One time she got picked and or she called and they were like, yeah, you don't have to come in. And then the other time that she went, she got there and they sent everybody home because the judges were at a conference. And it's like, first of all, what do judges need to have conference about? Like, I mean, I, I don't know. Like, hey, you know that, that law? Are you still upholding it? Yeah, I am. Oh, me too. That's cool. All right, let's go home. I mean, what are they talking about? Who knows? And uh, I got this new kind of robe. Let's, you should try it. It's like terry cloth. Anyway, I don't know what they're talking about. But, uh, but I, of all the times that I've been picked, I've only been picked on a jury once. And this guy was accused of a crime. And when, when the other attorney just started going for it, I mean, there was so much evidence against him. And to the point where the defense was like, hey, we're going to go ahead and take a break and talk about it. They came back and they're like, we've worked out an agreement. And uh, I was, I was, I've never been so glad someone was guilty in my life because I got to go home right after that. And um, that's where you laugh. But anyway... Um, <laughs> I know the rain has impacted your senses, so I will just let you know as we go, like, what your emotional reaction should be. So that's how we uh, do, but anyway, but so what I want us to do today is I want you to be the judge, and not, I'm not talking about judging other people, I'm talking about evaluating yourself, 
And I want you to look at your own life and see if you're growing as a Christian. Because that's one of the things that we're called to do. In the scriptures, we're called to test ourselves. And you, you see that in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, the Apostle Paul says, uh, examine yourselves to see if your faith is genuine. Test yourselves. Surely you know that Jesus Christ is among you. If not, you failed the test of genuine faith. Now, there, there's, when we talk about genuine faith or spiritual growth, there's a lot of confusion and what it means and how do you know and uh, how do I keep growing and how do I know if I'm growing and all of that. And Now, I bring this up because what we've been studying over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, which if you aren't aware, is probably the most theologically dense book in the New Testament. It was written to a group of Jewish Christians going through a very difficult time. And one of the things that I've been saying every uh, week as we go through this is trying to remind you of the overarching theme because if not we can get kind of lost in the weeds because it really is a challenging book but as long as we kind of remember the overarching theme it helps us in understanding the argument that the writer is making but one of the things these guys were asking is if God loves me why is life so hard and the answer to that question in the book of Hebrews is a very eloquent and theologically dense letter that serves as an encouragement to do the one thing that matters the only thing that's really going to help when you're going through a season of difficulty, and that is to fix your eyes on Jesus. And when you're struggling, here's what we can do sometimes. We can start blaming other people, or we can start trying to get our, make our own way out of the problem, even if we know it's a bit of a compromise to what we know God wants us to do. But what the writer is going to do is he's really going to boil it down to something to say that the problem is immaturity. And sometimes we think that our way is somehow better, and it's not. And, and the writer is going to show us, and has been showing us from the beginning, that Jesus is better than anything we can look to or think up or trust in. He opens the letter, if you remember, uh, if you were with us in the very beginning, that God had spoken in various times and in various ways through prophets, but in the last time would speak through his son, that Jesus was greater than the prophets. In the end of the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2, he talks about Jesus is greater even than the angels. He talks about Jesus is greater than Moses in chapter 3. He talks about that Jesus is greater than the Sabbath and is the fulfillment of the Sabbath in chapter 4. He, talks, he starts talking in chapter 5 about how Jesus is even greater than the high priest of Israel. And then he stops abruptly and says that they're not ready for what he's about to say because they aren't mature enough to handle it. And here's the thing that's so important is that the writer holds them personally accountable for their own spiritual maturity. And that's one of the keys that we see here. And that is that your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth is our own responsibility. And we will not become spiritually mature unless we do the things that the writer is talking about. And we're going to see that. We're going to start in chapter 5. In uh, verse 11 is where we're going to start. I want to back up to chapter 9 and, and start, and then it'll pick up to where it's on the screen and in your notes. But in verse 9, he says, And having been perfected, that is he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him, called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, and then here's where your notes pick up, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God and have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Something that my wife wrote to me just recently. He is a babe. 
speaking of someone else, not me. No. <laughs> I'm just, he's upset already. All right, let me move on. It says, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of youth, use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, there's three things we're going to talk about in relation to spiritual growth. And the first one, if you're a note taker, is that spiritual maturity is walking in wisdom. Now, one of the things that we've been saying is that the book of Hebrews contains six warnings. This is warning number four, and it is the danger of becoming dull of hearing and not growing to maturity. Now, the thing that you have to know about these Jewish believers that the book of Hebrews was written to is that many of them had been Christians for up to 30 years. And that even though they had been, many of them, Christians for three decades, they still needed training in the basics. And what's important for us to understand is that there is a difference between being a Christian for 30 years and being a Christian for one year 30 times. Because you just keep going over the same roads again, and we never stop making the same poor choices, and we, we don't grow to maturity. Now, there's a few things that I want you to note that are extremely important. The first thing I mentioned already, that the writer holds these believers personally responsible for their spiritual growth. It wasn't the church's fault that they weren't mature. It wasn't their parents' fault that they weren't mature. It was their own responsibility. Now, I'm grateful I don't hear this often, but every once in a while someone comes up to me and they'll say, you know, pastor, I'm just not getting fed. And that, that's something that Christians say that sounds incredibly mature, but actually is very carnal and not mature. And, and my response is usually one of two things. And the first thing is, is that if you've been a Christian for a while, you should know how to feed yourself. Um, but the second thing is they, they misunderstand what the role of what, what we do as, as pastors and what we do on Sunday. And that is that my goal when you are fed God's word is not to just glut you so that you don't have to eat anything until next Sunday. The role of feeding, God, of feeding you God's word is to change your appetite. And that's the point. That's why Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, not just those who generally hunger and thirst, it's those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And so if you start having a desire or an appetite for God's word. The goal is that you never feel full. You always have a desire and hunger for more. And you say, hey, I'm gonna show up to church and I've got my Bible and I'm gonna mark it up. I've got my notebook and I'm gonna write in there and I'm gonna fill it the journal or whatever I have with what I'm learning and what God is using that I need to put into practice. Now, the ch one of the challenges that just pastors have in general uh, is there's certain challenges that Bible teachers experience that most other teachers don't. So if you're a fourth grade math teacher, for example, and if you are, God bless you, you are the people we should be praying for. Um, but if you're a fourth grade math teacher, all of your students are, at the, are the same age, and all of your students are at the same education level. That is, they know third grade math. That's about as far as they've gone. That's why they're in your class to learn fourth grade math. But I want you to imagine that you are, your class, your math class, consists of fourth grade math, seventh grade pre-algebra, 12th grade trigonometry, college level calculus, and a few people show up using an abacus. And uh, that's what it's like every week when people walk into Calvary, because there's everyone is at a different stage of spiritual growth and development and maturity. We have people that grew up in a Christian home. And they are like the Bible champions of 1987. 
And we have also have people on the other side of the spectrum who are new in the faith. They're growing, they're excited, they're learning. We have people who aren't really Christians at all, but they're interested and in kicking the tires and asking questions. Now, on top of that, we have couples that are struggling. We have newlyweds that are doing great. We have single parents who are exhausted, single adults with all the energy in the world, senior adults who are thinking about their legacy, and seniors in high school with the future ahead of them. And now it's like, well, let me write a message that speaks to everyone. And I mean, it's it, it, incredibly different. And then we all walk in with this idea in mind, and that is, I want a message that speaks to me. But here's the challenge. The more the message speaks to you, the, it's possible that the less it speaks to someone else. So if I show up and I say, hey, I'm gonna teach on the subject of marriage. If you're married or you want to be, you're probably leaning forward very interested in what I'm gonna say. If you're in the seventh grade and you're here, you're like, what in the world did I get myself into? And uh, right, because I'm, I'm totally not interested. Why? Because sometimes the more it's applicable to you, the less applicable to someone else. But here's what mature people do. Mature people realize that even if the message isn't for them, they might be listening for someone else. And it's kind of like this. A few years ago, my wife ordered a pair of sneakers on Zappos, which by the way, as far as websites go, I mean, Zappos, very impressive. But, and not only did she order a pair of sneakers, she got another one in the mail. Uh, but it wasn't a duplicate order. She got another one of a different size. And then... She calls them and she's like, what am I supposed to do? And they're like, I don't know. You can just keep them. And uh, so we said, okay. And so now that she's got her shoes and then she's got like this pair that's like seven and a half or something. And she's like, I don't know what I'm going to do with these sneakers. Maybe if my feet shrink at some point or I can wait 10 years and then my kids can fit into them. But she just, we just had them in the box, just sitting in our closet. Someone comes over to our house uh, about a week later and is telling my wife about what's happening in their life and Money's tight, and man, look, I even need a new pair of sneakers, and I can't afford to buy them. And my wife says, let me guess. You're a seven and a half. And she said, yes. And that lady walked out with a brand new pair of sneakers uh, from our house. And, and here is the point. Not everything that's for you is about you. Now, let me say that again, just in case you went to public school. All right? <laughs> like me. And I went to public school more than anyone because it took me five years to graduate from high school, right? Not everything that's for you is about you. Not every message is about your situation. But if you will be quick to listen, God will put you in a situation that needs someone who's heard the info, the message at church, and now becomes an instrument in God's hand, a minister who's able to help. So singles might need to hear a marriage message for somebody else. And senior adults might need to hear a message for young people, but isn't for them, but they can share with someone who's young. The point that the writer is making, he says, listen, we've got a whole lot to talk about, but you've become dull or literally lazy in your hearing. They weren't interested in hearing messages that weren't for them or weren't for the topics that they were interested in. And what I love about this passage is that he contrasts it with being dull of hearing to the opposite, of, which is what he says in verse 14. Solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is those who are mature, and those who by reason of use, that word use means practice or habit, by reason of the fact that they are mature, how have they become mature? They have exercised how to discern between good and evil. 
That's how they've, they've learned to be wise in their decisions and because they have never taken anything that they've heard for granted. They've implemented all of it and employed all, everything that they've heard. Jesus' younger brother, James, he says these words in his book in chapter three. He says, who was wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in humility that come from wisdom. That, that phrase, good, the, the, a good life, it refers to, literally, it could be translated, I actually prefer this translation, that um, when he says, who is wise and understanding among you, let him show it by their beautiful life. And because that's what that word, the Greek word is kalos, K-A-L-O-S. And it refers to something being good because it's beautiful, because it's ordered. And that's part of what makes your life, my life, our lives beautiful if they are, is because things are working together. You're making choices that honor God, that invite God's blessing. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them that they had neglected this for years. They had neglected it and what it had led to was them being dull or lazy in their hearing. And now he's going to press into it even further in, chapter, in verse 1 of chapter 6. He says, therefore, in light of that, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not again laying the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead, and of eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you about spiritual maturity is that spiritual maturity is beyond the foundational. It doesn't ignore the foundational. It builds on the foundational. And what the writer does is that he talks about these six elementary principles that a mature faith is built on. These are the foundations. Now, what you have to understand is he's writing to these Hebrew Christians. And so they, in, in typical Jewish fashion, they're presented in couplets. It's one of the ideas that Jewish ideas are presented with. They're either presented in couplets, in contrasts. They're presented also in repetition. Uh, but in this sense, they're, they're in, they're, it's six things, but two couplets, uh, or two couplets of, of, of three or three couplets of two, pardon me. And uh, they are all ideas and practices that are embedded in Jewish theology. Now, some, sometimes people get weird. Like, I don't know, you know, is this like, um, if you know how to order a drink at Starbucks, then you're ready to understand theological terms, okay? And uh, so that's just the reality. And by the way, you ever want to, they've kind of corrected this, but every once in a while you can freak them out. If you go to a Starbucks and you say, hi, I would like a coffee. Like, they don't even know how to handle that situation. Like, what, what do you mean? You know, so you say that. And, and so, but if you order my drink, which is a grande breve latte with a quad shot. Now, if you want to know what that's all about, a black eye is one shot of espresso. A red eye is two shots of espresso. A purple eye is three shots of espresso. And a quad is four shots of espresso. At four shots is when you start seeing visions. So... <laughs> buyer beware. But anyway, so let's talk about these theological terms. So he says the first two are repentance from dead works and faith towards God. These are issue, issues of conversion. That is how God saved you and invited you into his family, the church. The idea of repentance is the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn. In, in the Greek mind, it meant uh, the turn meant to change your mind. In, in the Hebrew understanding, it meant, uh, the Hebrew word is teshuva, and it means to change your direction. And the idea 
is that they were not relying on their own religious activities to save them, but on Jesus' activities on the cross to save them. So he says, repentance from dead works and faith towards God. That is embracing Jesus' sacrifice for you as the means by which we are forgiven and made right with God. Jesus' sacrifice did not come to make you a good person. And, and by the way, acting godly and living rightly are the result of knowing God and being forgiven. They are never the prerequisite to being loved by God. We operate from the idea that we are loved by God and forgiven by him when we become Christians. So then the second two, the second set of couplets are the doctrine of baptisms and the laying on of hands. Now remember, he's talking to former Jews, so everything that he's saying is rooted in Judaism. Baptisms originally referred to ceremonial washings by those who were entering the temple. It also involved what were called uh, the mikvah, which was basically like a pool where people would go into the water and renounce their other gods and then come out as a member of Judaism. So it was converting to Judaism. And it was part of, baptism is once again still part of Christian liturgy and uh, part of a, a, a Christian sacrament because when G John the Baptist, what made John the Baptist famous was not that he was baptizing people. Lots of people, Jews baptized people all the time when they were going from the, whatever God they worshiped to then going into the Jewish uh, tradition. What made John the Baptist famous was that he was baptizing Jews. That was unheard of. That's why all the religious leaders came to see him. They're like, what are you doing? It's not that they had never seen anyone be baptized before. They had never seen anyone baptizing Jews. And he says, this is a baptism of repentance, that people are changing their mind, changing their direction, coming back to God. Jesus then was baptized, and then his disciples began to baptize. And once again, that's why it symbolizes, according to the book of Romans, you going into the water, identifying with Jesus in his death, coming out of the water, and identifying with Jesus in his resurrection. Now, when I was a young pastor uh, here at Calvary, we did this baptism at the beach one time. And this guy walks into the water and says, I'm giving up my old life, and that includes smoking. And for whatever reason, he had taken a pack of cigarettes with him into the water, and he handed them to me. And I'm like, what in the world am I going to do with a pack of cigarettes in my, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not going to just throw it in the ocean. And so I just, I'm like, okay, and so I just put it in my pocket. And then he asked me a question that people used to ask all the time. They're like, man, will I go to hell if I smoke? And I told him the same thing I tell everybody. Um, no, you won't, but you'll just smell like you've been there. And uh, so, anyway. So, he hands me the cigarettes. I put them in my pocket. We do the baptism. And then um, I get out, change, and go home. I forget all about them. And so I get home, and I have my bag with all my baptism stuff. I put it in our laundry room. And my wife is about to throw my stuff in, in the wash. And she pulls out this wet package of cigarettes and out of and she's and she comes out and she's like hey is there something you're struggling with that I don't know about and then I tell her the story and we laughed and laughed we shared a smoke together and uh <laughs> now that is a joke now that is a joke especially for those of you guys online that are half listening to this and half peating up a bagel that was a joke all right um so now <laughs> There's somebody is heating up a bagel right now, and they're like, does that camera work both ways? You know, so, 
So, now, and by the way, listen, baptism. Baptism is what separates the fans of Jesus from the followers of Jesus. And one of the questions that I get asked fairly regularly is what happens if I was baptized as an infant? I was baptized as an infant um, in, in, in my family's tradition. And one of the things that you'll find is there isn't one instance where in the Bible you see someone baptized as an infant. And the reason is because baptism is supposed to come from a person who's following Jesus, desiring to obey Jesus. And in fact, it's the Apostle Peter who says it's an issue of conscience that they're making that decision. You'll see it up on the screen in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says that this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience towards God. Now, I, so after I became a Christian, after about four months or so, uh, I went into the water and was baptized. And then, probably about a decade later, I was in Israel on, on a tour that I was leading, and we were baptizing at the very spot where John the Baptist baptized, where Jesus was baptized, and we did a, a baptism there, and we, we baptized 20 or 5 or 30 people, and um, I, at the end of it, I just felt so strongly, and I asked the other pastors who were there, and I'm like, I feel like you guys need to baptize me. I feel like God's calling me to do something, and it was to come start this church. I hadn't told a soul. My wife and I had been praying about it, and I said, I feel like I just want to be totally committed, totally sold out to what God wants me to do, and I went into the water and came out, listen, with a resolve that I was going to do the thing that God had called me to do. And here's why I tell you this, and here's maybe the thing, if I can challenge you for a moment, that maybe the direction that you're looking for is on the other side of your obedience to God. That sometimes one of the things that we do as Christians is we just get stopped in our tracks because we say, well, I just don't know what to do. And listen, one of the things when I talk to people, like, man, I just, I have these options, I don't know what to do. And I'll say, have you done everything you know for sure that you're supposed to do? And sometimes there's like stuff that we know to do that we haven't done, and now we're stopped because we, we're not sure about what this other step is. Maybe the direction that you're looking for is on the other side of your obedience to God and the things that you already know to do. So I'm going to invite you, on the back of your connection card that you got when you came in, if you haven't made a decision as pledging your conscience as an adult to be baptized, then you probably need to make that decision and say, I need to do that. And I'm going to encourage you to check it off. It's happening uh, next month. And I'm going to encourage you to check it off. We'll send you some info and we'll get you there to, to make the decision. So doctrines of baptisms. The fourth one is laying on of hands. Now, in, once again, in our understanding as Christians, we know that the scriptures teach us. Uh, James talks about the laying on of hands um, and the anointing with oil for people to be prayed for who are sick, that they might be healed. We also know that the laying on of hands is for someone who is called to ministry. You lay on, they, they would be, have their hands laid on them, and then you would pray for them that you, God might stir up the spiritual gifts that they need to do what it is that they're called to do. In the Jewish understanding, it, what's implied here is what's called the transfer of guilt. Now, this is where you would take an animal, and, and once again, in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, and it would either be for a person, for a family, or even for the entire nation that you would lay your hands on the animal, there would be what was called the transfer of guilt, that the sin of the nation, the person or the individual, was transferred on the animal. And then that animal was offered for, a, uh, for forgiveness or covering for sin. Now, 
The deeper understanding is that every single sacrifice was a picture of what would happen ultimately when Jesus fulfilled that. Now, he goes a little bit deeper, and he talks about the last couplet, which is the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Now, the idea of the resurrection existed in the in Old Testament theology, but it wasn't clarified. Christianity really expounded on it and brought out verses that maybe a lot of Hebrew scholars didn't even realize were about the resurrection. And once again, Jesus modeled for that for sure after the resurrection, because after his resurrection, Jesus had a new body. If you remember, Jesus could appear somewhere and then disappear. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that none of you can do that, right? Because that's not the way our bodies work. But the resurrection body, that is a body that is built for eternity, that is how it works. And once again, we have a body that's built for earth for a season of time. And then when we take our last breath on planet earth, according to the Bible, when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord, that we are going to get a brand new body and one that is built for eternity. And by the way, if you remember, when they saw Jesus, it, it took them a little bit to figure out that it was him. If you remember, it wasn't like exactly the same. So there were some differences. And so like if you're, when you step into eternity, if you come looking for me, I don't want you to look for a bald guy with a dad bod. No, I want you to look at a guy, look for a slim guy with chiseled abs and a straight up afro because that's what I'm going to be rocking. I'm going to look like a 70s movie. Um, and so anyway, but the Apostle Paul would say it this way in contrasting a physical body with a resurrection body. He says it this way, uh, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown perishable is raised, imp uh, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. And it is raised, it says a spiritual body, a better translation would be, it is, it is a uh, sown a natural body, it is raised a supernatural body. Now, eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is a reality of Christian theology. By the way, the person who spoke most about hell in the Bible is Jesus. Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. So this is an important talk. I, I gave a message a little while back and it was called, How Can a Loving God Send Someone to Hell? And it was uh, from a series we did called Asking for a Friend. But here's the thing that is important for us to know. Hell is a real place. It is not a metaphor. People actually go there. And that hell is a place of, and this is an important thing, an important uh, distinction. It is a place of, according to Jesus, a place of torment. No, I did not say torture. It's a place of torment, and there is a difference. Torture involves external pain. Torment is internal pain, and, and, and we understand that. We know people, and, and maybe some of us, that we are tormented by things that have happened in the past, things that we've done in the past, maybe things that we've said in the past, and we realize that it's not a physical pain. It's not someone poking or prodding me. No, it's an internal thing. It's an emotional and mental pain. That's what the Bible describes hell as. But here's the other thing that's important for us to understand. Um, theologian and author Tim Timothy Keller says, in short, hell is simply someone's, uh, 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 hell is simply one's freely chosen identity apart from God on a trajectory into eternity. No one ever asks to leave hell because the very idea of heaven to them seems like a sham. Listen, I want you to understand something and 
contrary to, uh, you know, what people have, like the caricatures of hell, no one goes to hell against their will. No one is like, you didn't make the right choice. No, please. Ah! And then they kind of like fall into a pit. That's not the way it works. Um, God created us as free beings who, ha- who can make choices. And for God to force us to make a choice, even one that benefits us, violates that. That's why uh, author C.S. Lewis called hell the greatest monument to human freedom. So here's the thing that we have to understand that. No one ever asks to leave hell. In fact, you see that every mention of hell in the Bible, there's moments where Jesus tells a story and it's about there's a guy in hell and he never asks to leave. Why? Because the people who are there want to be. And I know that that sounds insane, but it is the case. Because hell is a room that is locked from the inside. Because the one thing that it would take to leave is the one thing that they don't want to do, which is to acknowledge God. Uh, Philosopher J.P. Moreland says, hell is a place for people who, given what is needed to belong in heaven, submission to Jesus, don't want to go. You see, that's the one thing they refuse to do, and it's why they choose to be where they end up. And this is an important thing for us, because as people talk about what Christianity is and what Christianity isn't and who God is and who God isn't, it's important for us that we be able to answer these questions. That's why when I quote books to you or quote authors to you, that's code for buy the book, unless I'm quoting someone that I disagree with and I tell you, then don't buy the book, you're wasting your money. All right, but my point is this, is that we got to buy the books and read the books. Oh no, I watched this video on YouTube. I know, everybody thinks that they're an expert because they watch three YouTube videos, but not you. You're going to read the books and really learn what uh, this stuff is so that, because spiritual maturity, listen, and this is the key, spiritual maturity isn't just having the information. Spiritual maturity is having the information and being able to wield the information in a helpful, gentle, and respectful way to those who don't know. And then he says this, and this is where we'll close it in verse 4. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. For the earth which drinks in rain that often comes upon it and bears herbs useful for those by whom it is cultivated receives blessing from God, but if it bears thorns and briars it is rejected and near to being cursed whose end is to be burned. Last thing I want to tell you and that is that Spiritual maturity is depth of obedience. Now, the passage that we're going to read is probably one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. And there, it, is very, it is highly debated among scholars. There are no less than 16 views on this, uh, on this very passage. And I'm not going to bore you for the next two hours um, and talk about every view. And once again, people disagree. It reminds me of the story of this man that's walking across a bridge and he sees this guy that is about ready to jump off the bridge. The man walking across says, hey, don't jump, Jesus loves you. And the jumper says, I know. And the man says, you know, are you a Christian? The jumper says, yes. And the man says, me too. Protestant or Catholic? 
And the jumper says, Protestant. The man says, me too. What denomination? And the jumper says, Baptist. And the guy says, me too. And the man that's walking across, he says, hold on. He says to the jumper, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? And the jumper says, Northern Baptist. And the guy says, man, me too. And then the, the guy asks the jumper, are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? And the jumper says, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. And, and the guy says, you're not going to believe this, but me too. And he says, I'm sorry, I just have one more question. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist? Or are you Northern Conservative Reformed Baptist? And the jumper says, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist. And the guy says, me too. But if you don't mind me asking, are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region? Or are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Eastern region? And the jumper says, I'm Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes region. And the man says, you're not going to believe this. Me too. And he says, but I, I got another question. Are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Regent Council of 1879? Or are you Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And the jumper says, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. And the man says, die, heretic, and he pushes him off the bridge. <laughs> so my point is, is that we can disagree without people being pushed over a cliff. But now, now, one of the best ways for us to interpret a difficult passage, and this is really important as you read the Bible, because sometimes you'll say, man, I don't understand what this verse means. Well, part of the way we understand it is understanding the verses around it and then understanding what else the Bible has to say on that same topic. And this passage is about people who seemingly fall away from the faith. And they are identified as people who have done five things. And this is important. They have been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've become partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted of the good word of God. And they have uh, tasted of the powers of the age to come. Now, there's another thing that I want you to note that's important for us to understand, to understanding this, and that is there is one Old Testament story that the writer keeps bringing up over these first six chapters. It's this passage about the children of Israel leaving Egypt, coming to the very edge of the promised land, and not entering in. They could not enter God's rest because they did not believe. And that's an important thing, because even though they had been enlightened to God's love for them when they had been freed from Egypt with all of those plagues that were put on the Egyptians, even though they had tasted of the heavenly gift of manna each morning, even though they had become partakers of the Holy Spirit as God led them through the desert with a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, they had tasted of the good word of God at Mount Sinai when they were given the very words of God and his law, and they had tasted of the power of the age to come as they experienced miracle after miracle after miracle revealing God's power. And so what's the point? is that these were God's people, but they missed the promises that God had for them, and they ended up wasting their lives. And here's what the writer is saying with that as a backdrop. 
If you go back to your old life after experiencing everything that you've seen God do, it isn't going to work. You're going to be miserable because you've got too much Jesus to go back to the old life. And you've got a little too much of the old life to really step into and enjoy the blessings of God. This is why depth of obedience to God brings the life that we've been desiring. And this is why compromise doesn't work. Even though it seems like a shortcut, it always takes us further away from our goals, plans, and dreams. And that's just the insidious nature of sin. You see, in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all with unveiled face, beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. And here's the point. He says, we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. That there is, as you press into your walk with God, that there is a depth, glory to glory, that comes through maturity. Now, I want to talk to two different groups of people. I want to talk to those of us who are in the room and those of us who are not in the room and are watching online. So I'm going to talk to the online folks first because you guys can't go anywhere. Um, but I know people watch online for a variety of reasons but I want to challenge you in something if you're going to work and going to restaurants and going to the store I just want to tell you something you're in danger you're not in danger of coronavirus you're in danger of becoming a casual Christian that you have pushed back uh, you, you've taken a back a, a, these steps back in your faith. And I want to tell you that this idea of being a casual Christian, that spiritual state doesn't last long. It's usually the last stop before we walk away altogether. And so I'm telling you this for your own spiritual health. So you don't, don't end up missing out like those that we were reading about who saw God do great things but watched it from afar and ended up missing out. What I want you to do is to step out in faith and make some decisions that are going to impact your spiritual life in a positive way. Because listen, if you've been gone and haven't come back, it's been seven months. And there is no way that being gone for seven months has not impacted you negatively. And the thing is, there's something to do about it. Now, I'm not talking about people who are at risk or, or whatever. I'm talking about if you're out and about, like I've gone on vacation, I'm going to work, I'm going out to eat. Uh, it's, I'm just telling you this as your pastor and someone who loves you. I'm telling you this, it's time. And if you're quick to make an excuse as to why it's not time, then that could be an indicator that you're not headed in a good direction. Now, let me talk to those of us that are in the room because this warning is for us as well that we cannot allow ourselves to become dull of hearing. And it's so easy to get there that, listen, God is speaking through his word every time we walk into this room. And sometimes it's right to us. And sometimes it's for us to carry the message for someone else. That it's like, hey, I got a pair of shoes that are just your size. I've got a message that's going to fit exactly what you're going through right now. And this warning from Hebrews, listen, is a warning that we need to hear to do some reflection, to be the judge and say, listen, how am, I, how am I doing? Am I testing myself? Am I really in the faith? Or have I been maybe becoming dull or lazy in my hearing? And we can then make a choice that will lead to spiritual health and spiritual maturity because the worst thing that you could do 
is spend your life wandering in the wilderness and knowing that all it took to enter into the promised land was just to really believe, to really trust God, to really take an actual step in his direction. And you know what the cool thing is? If you take one step in his direction, he's going to meet you there. And it's almost like the next steps get easier. And listen, when you do, amazing things happen. Amazing things happen. And you'll never want to let your walk with God take a back seat again. Let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you for the warnings that you give us because we know that they're not in vain. And for some of us, we need to hear it. For some of us, we need to take some serious action to keep from becoming dull of hearing. And God, I know some of us are on the edge of that happening. God, help us to make a wise choice while there's still time and while we still hear your voice. So God, do that work that only you can do. And we pray it in Jesus' name and everybody said, amen. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.